Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Stompcast with me, Dr. Alex George. This is a podcast where I go for a walk with a guest to take a little wander into their life. This week, I'm stomping with Michaela Loach. Michaela is a climate justice activist and author of It's Not That Radical, a book that discusses the actions we can all take to change the world. In 2020, Forbes, Global Citizen and BBC Woman's Hour named Michaela as one of the most influential women in the UK climate movement. So it's a privilege to speak to her ahead of Earth Day, which is on the 22nd of April. I'm sure you're gonna see a lot of activity online and in the press about Earth Day, but I'm looking forward to having a positive conversation with Michaela and getting her take on climate change. And to reiterate, this is a solutions-based conversation. It's not doom and gloom. And I hope you're gonna leave this feeling positive and inspired. Well, welcome to the Stompcast and what an absolutely beautiful day. I know, we're so lucky. Um, we're so lucky. Me. I feel like I've been, I'm sorry to all the stompers, I've been a little bit moany about the weather <laughs> of late um, because we've had a lot of grey weather. Um, yeah, we But it's beautiful to have some sunshine and producer Charlie and I were just saying, oh, the dogs barking now, we're saying how, um, how lovely it is to have good weather in terms of like your mood and stuff. Mm, it just sure. lifts everyone's mood and you're wearing a beautiful pink outfit <laughs> and you came and I said, you're just got that, you're capturing that joy of of spring which is yeah. which is so nice i think it's you know the world nature sunshine just makes such a difference doesn't it no it does activity. for sure i think it makes us feel a bit more optimistic about things and then therefore acts a bit more optimistically which i think then makes the world a bit better as well absolutely well i want to start with a congratulations because you've graduated from your intercalation yeah it was in global health policy global um, health policy yeah, in edinburgh Amazing. Very fun. And how does that feel to have that done? Um, it feels really good. I, I really enjoy I know that not everyone enjoys the intercalations mm. in medicine, but I really enjoyed mine. I, I kind of used it to explore more about climate justice, mm. like through university. Um, and actually, the week before I did the graduation, the Global Health Policy School invited me back to give a keynote at their conference, which was very lovely. Like, felt weird to be on the other side of the lecture theatre, but um, it was very kind of them. And I, yeah, it was really lovely. Pretty amazing. Well, I mean, look, you're, you're a special person. You've done lots of incredible things. And I've, as I've been kind of looking through your resume, as, <laughs> as it were, you know, you clearly someone that has a passion and you don't have just that kind of sense of like, oh, I'm passionate about this, but you sit back. You're someone that's very active, shall we mm, say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the word activist is thrown around a lot, but you really mm. are active in your your passions before we dive into the conversation today and it's obviously a, a big one around uh world earth day um, mm. i'd like to talk to you a little bit about first what what did you really learn from that that degree just uh, to summarize if you can the whole mm. degree what was the kind of message because we often go away so for people listening who are not from medical backgrounds you know often in medicine you can have the opportunity in your main degree to go away and interclate so what that really means is to go and study an area of interest, um, read into an area of interest, and you kind of join the last year or last two years of a, mm-hmm. of a degree. Um, I didn't actually decide to do that. I'm in the middle of doing a public mental health master's now, so I've done nice. it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what, did you, what have you kind of learned from it? 
I think the biggest thing was, um, so Global Health Policy focuses a lot on how there's a lot of inequalities in health and especially social inequalities. And I remember very clearly one of the lectures in our kind of social determinants of health. So what like social factors determine the health that people have. There was a quote by Hilary Graham, who's like a sociologist um, in this area. Um, and she said that health inequalities become written on the body as sorry, social inequalities become written on the body as health inequalities. I think that that is kind of the like clear kind of message of the whole course was just how much we can in medicine talk about like patching people up kind of mm. but not actually start addressing why people are unwell in the first place why do they have unsafe housing that means that they like have respiratory problems why is it that they have I don't know or why is, is it that their boss is stressing them out so much that they end up with like other like problems with their heart or other issues like what is it that our social context is having an impact on our health and then on that there was we also talked a lot about climate thankfully in our degree um, and um, there was a really brilliant lecture um, on like the climate crisis and health in which it talked about how the Lancet, which is this like big, you know, health body, um, in their previous report they on climate and health, they titled it that the climate crisis was the greatest threat to global health globally, um, which we've, we've had that so many times, climate crisis and threat, the kind of doomy kind of narrative. And then a couple of years later, that the same report, just the next one, um, they said that clim the climate crisis is the greatest opportunity for global health. Um, and that reframing was because when we recognise that this crisis is inherently connected to social inequalities and injustice, then we can tackle it in a way that also tackles those social inequalities and injustice. And therefore, we have an opportunity to actually make a better and transformed world. Um, I think that that kind of more hopeful reframing and that kind of framing of it as connected to all these injustice issues um, is what really like motivates my work now. So it did have a really big impact on me. I'm really, I mean, there's so much you've said there that, uh, that we, well, I'd like to dive into, but let, let's start on that point of how we view this issue because, and anyone that's joining us, this is, you know, I'm, I feel very positive that we, we're, we're going to look at some of, yes, and issues, but also some of the solutions. Mm -hmm. And I'm naturally a problem-solving mm -hmm. mindset. I think it's probably the ADHD in me. <laughs> I'm like, I want to I know the solutions. What, how do we solve this? Yeah. Because sometimes it's such a doom and gloom narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think people see more and more, yes, it's a really big problem. Yeah. But what do we, what do, we do about that? So if anyone mm -hmm. listening, you know, if you're triggered by climate anxiety, I hope you'll find this conversation uh, soothing. And I hope that we're going to hear some of... You know the possibilities that we have you know because sure. there is a possibility there is hope that we can sort it out we just have to act and That's i think true. the the interesting point about seeing the doom and gloom and looking at it as like oh my god we're all screwed yeah. is that what humans tend to do in those situations is that mm -hmm. they they bury their heads in the sand yeah. and we know like for example when it comes to financial health so financial mm. worries we know that a lot of people who worry about the finances which is most people mm. either end up a proportion then will go and like tackle that and you think about the finances maybe plan their money budget look at for help or support or you know try and tackle the reasons why mm. they worry about the finances uh, but a lot of people actually will bury their head mm. in the sand or ignore it or you know think right I can't even think about it. it's too stressful and I think mm. the climate situation is probably in that kind of thing as well or in that in that kind of same category and I guess one of the biggest things about the climate crisis and in many ways similar to the financial crisis and that we're in an energy crisis is that for a lot of people it feels very much like it's out of our control yeah and it feels that sense of like okay so if i do these things in my day to day is that really is there a benefit in doing that when you know, mm -hmm. you look at other countries around the world and actually including our governments mm. and international government and policy that, that actually just diminishes yeah. your individual decision making. Now, I, I, I 
quickly mm. say that actually doing the right thing and doing the small thing not only actually cumulatively can make a difference but also if you're if you're struggling with climate anxiety one of the best things to do is to take small actions because yeah. that empowers you that centers you and it makes you aware and feel that you are trying to make that difference mm. and i i really really can like sympathize to anyone who feels overwhelmed by the enormity of this crisis i remember that i don't know how many years ago it was now but i there was a time where i would literally lie awake in bed just terrified um, about our future and the present for so many people um, and I think that a lot of that fear came from this place of yeah feeling like there's not much that we could do feeling like I didn't have much agency and that all these decisions are being made by people that I didn't have an impact on that's what I felt then um, and that also because I was being told that the only thing that I could do to tackle this ginormous crisis was to like sit at home and make my own oat milk and like I don't think that that I think that I knew there was like a mismatch of, of how big this crisis was and the actions that we were being told to do um, and for me what really kind of got me out of that space of, of, of doom and of panic um, was recognizing how much power we have when we join collectives and movements and come together and and how much my power as an individual is so much smaller when I act on my own but when I join that power with other people like it's almost like it's an exponential growth of how much impact that we can have and that actually like how how things have changed in the past has been through ordinary people wonderful people at the same time but ordinary people coming together in in collectives um, and pushing change through it's not but we're kind of told that it came from like these heroes these like amazing people mm. and I think that that's a mistelling of like the reality of of how change happens and I think that that leads to people feeling a bit disempowered but I think what I really want also people to know is like we are not doomed and the only way we will be doomed is if we don't do anything um, and so if we if we want to take this kind of opportunity we have to actually create a better world into our hands um, and we have to take action and, and by that I mean like joining groups and communities and, and not doing it alone I think that you'd also feel a, a, a lot less anxious about it all um, and have a, and feel a bit more power because we do have a lot of power um, as people when we work together. There's two things in that I, I, mm -hmm. I really um, want to emphasise the points on and actually even towards the general uh, life is that first of all um, you know we often think my voice as an individual it's not that loud but if mm. you combine it of course it's is, is immeasurably loud mm. and I just to take a small snapshot of an experience I've had you know mm -hmm. I put this picture up saying I want to see Boris we need to change mm -hmm. the situation in mental health in this country mm -hmm. you know it wasn't at the end of the day me posting that as an individual is not what made it happen it mm. is the millions quite literally of people who yeah. shared who kept pushing who kept tagging Boris's account and mm -hmm. the government's account that is what made it happen mm -hmm. so actually it wasn't me it was mm. the millions of people with mm. me that we mm -hmm. all you know made that happen and you know we've got a long road to the success that I want to see but it is just a small snapshot of actually it is that collective voice yeah, sure. that makes a difference and also the thing around action and inaction is I think that we naturally feel like not doing something is not making a decision or mm, not acting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but inaction is an action in yeah. itself it's kind of like being in a relationship that you're <laughs> really unhappy in mm. and saying well actually i'm really unhappy in this but i'm kind of fearful of or think it's going to be really hard to leave the relationship yeah. um, and i'm fearful of what will happen it's actually easier for me to stay in and mm. it won't be any worse but mm. actually you're living in a worse situation it might be hurtling towards mm. a big issue or you know dragging out for a long time and you think oh well that's that isn't making a decision well mm. it, it is no, it is making yeah. a decision and if we continue on this path we're on, a, we're on the rails we can mm -hmm. continue without making a decision to you know stop or make a make a turn mm -hmm. then we are making a con we're making really an unconscious but important decision not to do something I, I think that's such an important point also because when we talk about climate we also often say like oh 
there's been inaction on climate by governments or by companies or institutions, but there has been like a huge amount of action just in the wrong direction. Um, in 2022, 2021, um, I took the UK government to court over the fact that the government give billions of our public money to oil and gas companies every single year, which promotes them in policing and gives them huge tax breaks. And that isn't inaction on climate, that is a choice that has been made to make it extremely profitable and, and in, incentivize um, companies to continue to extract more and more oil and gas out of the ground that we don't need. Like we have such a huge renewable capacity in the UK in particular, and also like all of these international bodies like the International Energy Agency, um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, have all said that if we want a livable future, we can have no new investment in oil and gas. So we need to be kind of scaling oil and gas down and scaling up renewables. But instead of the action being taken in the right direction, a significant amount of action is being taken in the wrong direction. I think that like understanding that the world as it is now is the result of choices of people, um, then we can realise that other choices can be made and that everything is not immutable. Um, it's almost that kind of lost cause theory where mm. um, if you feel like something's lost cause, oh well, we're, you know, this is tattered now, we'll just continue doing it. Like yeah. there is actually, you have an opportunity. It, it is not an entirely lost cause. I think yeah. that's potentially, I think, you know, and I think, you know, if you look at what Greta's doing and her mm. work, I think one of the things that I, you know, look at, and I'm very careful to criticise at all because actually I think mm. she gets so much stick and all that kind of mm. stuff, and I don't like trolling, I don't like any, whatever. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I do notice is that I think because it's like we're all screwed, everything's so yeah. bad, I think a lot of people watching that who are not mm. experts, who don't understand, who mm. are lay people like myself really, mm. They feel like, well, oh, what's the point? It's like, well, yeah. Greta, who's the expert in this, who's talking about this, who's mm. traveling around the world, she's saying we're all screwed. So mm. there is that difficulty of like, if you kind of just say, oh, this is really, really, really bad. It's, you know, it's what we're all in so much trouble. Mm. It's almost like you go too far and then people think, oh, well, it's a lost cause now. Mm. And I think I sympathize a lot with folks that are like are framing it in that way only because I think that it comes from this like, oh, I was scared into caring about this and so you always want to simulate that fear in other people yeah. but one thing that I write about in the book is like how fear is not a great motivator like I think it, as we said earlier it makes people freeze it doesn't make people do something and so I think that we're at a point now in the UK as an example um, where like recent surveys have shown that 60% of people really care about the climate crisis it's, it is a huge issue that people care about it's a majority it's, it's a majority but it's the third thing yeah. it's the third biggest worry for all adults is the climate change mental and health and finance huge. is the only thing that are above it and actually and mental health ties yeah. into it anyway so yeah exactly yeah, sorry and to it, no, no 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 and that's exactly that and i think that so i don't think that we need to actually convince people it's happening anymore i think people know especially in the uk context people understand we are in a climate crisis that is happening i think what people don't know is like what can we do about it and can we do anything about it i think that that's what kind of the role of a lot of my work is just trying to get people out of the doom zone and get them into the action it's zone. So I've got to say, it, it is, I cannot tell you how unbelievably refreshing it is actually on the way here to record. I was saying I really hope that that was, and I felt like seeing your mm. posts and stuff, I felt like that was your feeling. I was like, really hopeful that is the case because mm. I know listeners, I mean, you've got an audience who enjoy nature and walking. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure everyone cares about mm -hmm. climate change is listening to the stomp car. So it's not pushing against the, yeah. the closed door as it were. So, so for people listening, we're going, to delve, we're going to dive in and out of what actions we can take. But mm. you know, at this point in the discussion, I just wonder what are the things when, you, when we say, you know, there are things we can do. Mm. What are those things, I guess, on, on that kind of 
individual and beginning to be collective level but also yeah. if we can get our governments to do what they should do mm -hmm. what what would your dream decisions be you know mm. so i think those things are all going to end up being connected but um so like if i tell a bit of like what my kind of journey has been yes. um i started off um when i was a teenager going to volunteer on the border of the us and france in calais um with displaced communities there um, I was born in Jamaica but grew up in the UK um, and we moved here when I was only three years old and I remember when that, the picture of Alan Kurdi, who was a three-year-old Syrian boy, um, his body washed up on a beach in Greece when he tried to make the same, like a very similar journey that I did but I was able to make my journey safely and easily because of the privilege of having a British father whereas because of the lottery of life yeah, like he wasn't gosh. afforded that privilege. Um, when you put it like that, it's just awful, isn't it? It is, because it, it is completely a, a lottery, like who we end up being born into. Of course it is. And um, course it is. that really like motivated me because I realised how similar I think our situations were whilst being very different at the same time. And so I got involved first by just going and like, my activism then was going and like chopping vegetables in a, <laughs> in a kitchen and so making meals for people. It, it can be so simple like that, but just doing it with other people. And it was in Calais that I actually met I guess the first like activists that I'd ever met. And they were just ordinary people. They weren't these like, they whilst being wonderful at the same time, they weren't, I think I thought all activists were like Martin Luther King Jr. or I like Andrew Davis. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought they were mean. these like incredible public speakers, like all these different things. And actually these people were just ordinary. So what's the power of the ordinary, isn't it? Which is a beautiful sure. thing. It's yeah. like you as an ordinary person, you are incredibly powerful. You just need that kind of focus and direction. Exactly, and I, and I think that they were just, using the skills they already had, which in some way was just like organising things or mm. folding clothes. Um, and that made me realise how much power we can have together. And also that just being active is so important and not waiting around for other people to do it. And then I kind of got into climate in a bit of a roundabout way and joined a lot of groups um, taking more radical direct action. Um, and But since then have been involved with lots of campaigns against um, the fossil fuel industry in the UK and particularly Stop Cambo, which is which was this big campaign that we did that was really, really successful. In, in six months, we managed to stop an oil field from being approved wow, um, in the amazing. UK, which is which That's was historic. Incredible. Yeah, but, but incredible. the only reason that that was possible, though, was because wow. of like decades of campaigning by so many incredible people whose names I might never know and who I might never meet. But it was their work that kind of, I say, like fertilised the ground for our win to be possible. And so I think that when I say like what people can do, in particular in the UK, at the moment, um, the government are trying to push through like 35 different oil and gas projects um, that are going in complete contradiction to all of the climate goals that we've signed up to. So Stock Cambo is still an operating group and it's resisting a lot of the other oil fields um, and it's in particular Rosebank, which is a huge one. So just off the coast of Scotland, um, if this oil field is exploited from and extracted, it would, and the oil burnt, it would create the same amount of emissions as the 28 poorest um, countries combined, their annual emissions. Oh my gosh. 28 countries for one oil field. That's really not a story that I think is told a lot of time. Because I think mm. a lot of the thing we hear is kind of, and it's, it's often is finger pointing and saying, right, well, China's doing this, so there's no mm. point in you doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the narrative you hear yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. Or, you know, this country is doing it, therefore there's no point in us doing anything. You don't actually hear that story that no, often, do you? That yeah. is in our home, that's our land here. And I think that it's, it's deliberate distraction techniques. And I actually talk about um, the kind of China, what about China? argument in my book quite a bit, especially around population and stuff, because that also gets brought up quite a bit. Um, but I think that especially those of us who are in the UK, we are in kind of, we're in a country which historically has contributed so many emissions to this crisis. Um, the UK kind of built its entire industrialization. It developed 
based on oil and gas. And so it has a greater responsibility to also scale down these, and also because we have a capacity to, to scale down the fossil fuels kind of quicker. And other countries that haven't built their economies off fossil fuels um, need to be supported in being able to make that transition. And I think when we talk about China in particular, they're actually scaling up renewables faster than any country in the mm. world, but that doesn't really get talked about. Um, instead, what gets talked about is how they are producing so much, but we need to remember like, what, who are they producing that stuff for? Like, yeah. who is using all of those things? Who is buying and all the things exactly. from them and why, why are they actually having the demand to do and that? And in know? our international kind of statistics that we put out around emissions, we don't include consumption emissions. So basically the emissions for the things that we actually use in our lives. And so that's why these kind of graphs can look really skewed and it can seem like China's producing so much more. But actually those goods are being used and sold in the UK and in the US. When you say goods, European... like, just to, just so, mm. we could talk, so anyone listening, because some people come into this from a fresh yeah, perspective, course, not yeah. new, but like, what do you mean by goods? What like are you talking about? Like the clothes about? we wear, like the yeah. phones we use, um, the furniture we have. I think we need to, I think so often we forget that people have made all of these things that are in our lives. Mm. I think that we act as if like everything in our lives is made by robots and actually a very small amount of things are, are not made by people. Um, when clothing companies say like everything, oh, our stuff is handmade, I find it quite funny as if it's like a bonus because I'm like, so all of the, like, all of the clothes we have are made by people. Like it's not a, an extra thing. And I think we need to remember that the livelihoods of those people are connected to our lives and that we should also be advocating for the lives of those people. Well, it's interesting well. that you see a lot. Of, I had a really interesting conversation with both Adam Henson uh, and Jimmy O'Doherty as well, because they're both farmers. They, they see, they, so they produce, mm -hmm. um, they produce the food that we, we eat mm. on our plates. They see the kind of from birth of the, the pig or the growth of the crop all the way to the sale. And I think what, what has happened in this country is that there's been a separation. Some people often think deliberately from the consumer and mm, the product you're eating. Mm -hmm. So you see this pack of bacon, you don't realise that it has, people realise it's come from something, but mm. there's this like separation emotionally yeah. or mentally away from the animal you're eating. And when we look at food waste, which we, is a huge issue, like something like half mm. of all food is, is wasted, some kind of huge statistic mm. like that. Um, uh, when you look at that, you think, well, there's no surprise. And we just feel that there's not a value to it because yeah. we don't feel that connection with mm. the thing that we're, we're eating. And, Similarly, I guess with clothes, if you just think, oh, well, it's a T-shirt or it's yeah. this or it's that, you, you kind of, you go, oh my gosh, you think about it, oh my God, it's been made in this country, it's been yeah. travelled across the world, mm. I bought it to wear it three or four times, mm. oh, it's a bit, uh, maybe I'll just chuck away or get a new one. Yeah, yeah. And, you just, and, and it's not criticising anyone because we've all done it or, you know, certainly yeah. in my experience, we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. But it's no surprise because there is such a separation from that source or from that connection from that thing yeah. that we're buying or using or whatever. For sure, and I think it's also quite deliberate because if there is this separation, then we're not going to be advocating for the people who make them that much because we don't even think about them. Where And then, therefore, these kind of big companies can exploit their workers more and more and more and there will be no resistance to it because people don't even think about it for a second. Um, and we saw the fact that in like the mid-2000s, there was a collapse of a factory called Rana Plaza. Um, and that factory made clothes for many different fast fashion companies and, and luxury brands as well, which is important to mention because a lot of the same, the, those things are made in the same factories. Um, and hundreds of garment workers were killed in that collapse of a factory. Gosh. And they had said to their bosses, hey, there are cracks in the walls, it's not safe. But because of these big fast fashion companies or even luxury brands are constantly saying we need more products for less money so that we can make the things pressure, cheaper yeah. here and pressure on, 
they didn't allow them to like actually survey the building properly or to actually make it safe and they forced the workers to work and said if they didn't come to work even though they saw the cracks then they'd be fired and, and a lot of these people are paid barely anything at all so they can't afford to take a day off work um, even for their own safety and so I think that it's important that we remember like the people who make all the things in our lives and 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 just I think strive for connection and follow that connection as much as we can I think that the way that and in an unequal world kind of thrives is, is one by making us believe this is the only way it can be and that there's nothing else that's possible and the second thing is by like making us feel that we are disconnected to each other yeah. and and making us forget that like yeah all of our lives are intertwined and i think that once we remember that that's when we'll be able to actually start changing things and we see oppression in many different ways and just to get the, just on the same thread i was mentioning mm. with the farming i actually um was back in wales where, which I, where I was born and our neighbors are farmers there and we were visiting um, uh, the farmer Ray, who's a lovely man, and he was he was explaining how um, big part of the problem is that the way that we're treating the farmers here in this country and forcing the prices down by having these like, mm -hmm. say for example, in other parts of the world like New Zealand where we're like mass, yeah. so many like the huge livestock, the the costs can be brought down. You know, some people would argue not all of the conditions are as good as mm -hmm. you may always expect. They are certainly a story narrative that I've heard. I'm not saying that there aren't fantastic farms out there and so on but I've mm -hmm. heard that essentially there's some really good farmers in this country that are priced out by meats that's abroad mm. so we're basically kind of this the sense of all you're pressing your own farmers mm. rather than looking and going how do we look at local food mm -hmm. and think how do we create an environment that people feel connected between consumer and that farmer to support them because people you know you buy a chicken for like two pound fifty and, yeah. and people get really annoyed if it's like say three pound or whatever you know mm. whatever it is it's, a, it's an actual animal. It's taken. It's taken. Yeah, it's and, a natural animal. And also, it's a whole life. It's a life. It's a that. life that I think. Like, I think that um, we do just devalue. I think a lot of the things in in our lives in in general because I think we're we're pushed to. And this is why I think it's we can connect this back to like our kind of economic system that literally requires growth. Like we we live under is the only expansionary system that we've had and it's also like so this is capitalism and it is younger than most major religions and yet we act as if it's immutable but it requires persistent and constant growth and more and more profit which incentivizes like t making cuts wherever possible and and doesn't incentivize like ethical practices or looking after people or people's lives and i think that we all are actually deserving and I think all the beings in this world are so deserving of something so much better that actually kind of prioritizes us. But I think that a part of getting there is also like affirming that value and, and recognizing that value in those connections. So if we just think about as we close at the end of part one, just mm. think about some of the threads we've picked up. So around um, some of the decision making by our government, so we talked about mm. um, some of like the new oil and things that, 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 that they're looking to do. Mm. Um, and also thinking about, say, some of the products we buy from maybe from abroad or thinking about the kind of connection with that and our food. What are some of, what are the things then that you think, you know, or specifically on the things we've raised here, what mm. are the things you'd like to see that could be changed? So mm. we have a real positive end to part one or some of the things that we can actually do and change. I, I think we can put a lot, a lot of pressure on our government in particular to agree to not open any new oil and gas fields. I think that is very possible and very necessary. And a way that we can do that is there's a initiative called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. So basically they use the same logic as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So back in the like 1980s, um, a bunch of different people from all around the world came together and said that nuclear warheads are the weapon of mass destruction. We cannot have any more of them if we want humanity to survive. And so we need to get all these countries to sign on to not making any more of them. We already have some, but we're not gonna make any more. 
And this treaty uses the same kind of logic because it says that fossil fuels are the new like weapon of mass destruction in our world because they will destroy our entire world if we continue using them. And they're getting governments to sign on, they're getting local cities to sign on. Um, there's lots that's happening there and so you can get involved by signing on yourself and then also by kind of put, putting pressure on our government to actually sign on to it um, and to actually change and also causing disruption. So joining groups like Stop Cambo um, or others um, to kind of prevent these new fields. So that's one thing. Another thing is to like remember the people who have made all the things in your life. Um, ask questions before you buy things. Um, for example, if it's from a clothing brand, ask like, are the workers able to unionize? Um, are they paid living wages? And try like buying less. I think that's the main thing we need to do is consume a lot, lot less than we're currently using. Um, in general, when it comes to like meat and animal products in particular, we need to be consuming a lot, lot less and um, focusing on like the conditions in which people, things are able, kind of coming from. Um, and then another thing I would just say, which is kind of connected to everything is, but just like join a, a group in your local area that's working on whatever issue it is, whether it's migrant justice, whether it is working on like food, whether it's mutual aid or where there is directly kind of climate and um, join in with people in your community and start like building communities. I think when we build community, we realize those connections to each other a lot more and that we also feel much better supported as well. And you know, when you're saying about joining kind of groups in your local community, it's a great mm -hmm. thing to do. If you're experiencing climate anxiety, mm -hmm. you'll have a sense of connection with people, create a sense of purpose. And actually we know that one of the biggest challenges we, for people's mental health in this country is loneliness. Like there's yeah. a loneliness yeah, yeah. epidemic happening. Mm -hmm. There's a way that you can connect with like-minded people who also mm -hmm. care about issues you care about and mm -hmm. create, a, create a really nice community. And I think sometimes that isn't talked about enough actually. No. You know, I mean, I, I work with some incredible people across the charities and actually um, people within government too who do care mm -hmm. about uh, mental health and mm -hmm. you know, by getting to know them and working with them, you feel really connected, you feel mm, part of something. Mm -hmm. And I think as human beings, we are, we need a purpose, you know? For so sure. there's a great purpose and to also have. And when we talk to each other, like we understand the conditions that we're all living under and we can actually change them more. Like I think that we're, as people, we're much easier to kind of exploit from if we don't talk to each other, <laughs> if we're not connected to each other. Um, and I think that there's so many benefits from like building community. And I think it's, a, it's such a, huge shame that that's been deliberately kind of discouraged in the last like 40, 50 years in particular. Um, but I think that we can, we can push back on that. So the message there is to get together, be part of a community and take action and you will feel so much better for it and you'll make a difference. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed part one of the Stompcast. It is a glorious day. Wherever you are, I hope you've enjoyed your stomp. And if you're joining us straight away on part two, brilliant. Be coming back another day. We'll see you soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com